this morning we are actually finishing up, Lord willing, the book of James. And I'm looking around and there's still a lot of familiar faces. We've made it through the book of James together. That is a demonstration of God's grace. And this morning we have one sentence left in the book of James. And you would think, awesome, we're going to lunch early. Well, maybe. We'll see about that. I don't know. It's possible. I mean, this is one sentence. I mean, read it and go, right? It's one sentence. So before we get started, let's go ahead and pray and ask God to continue to reveal himself to us. Father, we thank you that we come this morning not to hear the opinions of man, but God, to study your truth. God, we thank you for this amazing book of James, for the, the challenge that it's been to us, but for the faithfulness of your spirit to teach us, to reveal truth to us. God, I pray in this place this morning that, Father, your spirit would illuminate the truth. That as James has argued from cover to cover, that faith without works is dead. That this morning, once again, that we would hear that message. That your spirit would aliven and quicken any of us who need to be quickened to true repentance and faith. But God, also this morning, as James finishes this letter, that we would all be exhorted this morning to be diligent about going out and sharing the good news, especially with those who have known the truth and have wandered from it. Father, help us to be doers of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of this morning's message is A Matter of Life and Death. How does that sound for urgency? Don't people often ask that? I mean, are we talking life and death here? I mean, is this something I have to take care of now? Are, are we certain it's life and death? And I will tell you this, church, I am certain this is a matter of life and death. Guarantee it. If you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do open up to James chapter 5, or it's also inside the bulletin this morning. And let's rise to our feet and honor the public reading of God's word. Hopefully it won't be too long on our feet. It is a sentence. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. James closes the letter by saying, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So reads God's inerrant, infallible, and holy word. Please be seated, church. You ever sat in church and heard a message and said, I really wish so-and-so was here to hear this. This message is really for them. Well, if you're a professing believer in Jesus Christ this morning, guess what? This message is for you and for me. James closes his letter with the exact reason why he has written this letter. There were professing believers who had wandered from the truth. You say, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? It's a matter of life and death. You know, it's interesting that there are people, even professing Christians, that teach that heaven is real, but hell is not real. They teach that there is no literal hell. That that is not what Scripture teaches. And yet they profess 
that this is the Word of God. How did they get to that conclusion? How could a believer in Jesus Christ who trusts the words of Jesus believe that there is no hell? How could someone attest to reading the Scriptures for themselves and conclude there is no hell? Do you know out of all the big biblical figures, do you know which one spoke of hell the most? Jesus. Jesus spoke of hell the most. He spoke of it being a place of constant and eternal torment for the wicked. How does that start off our morning with warm and fuzzy? Maybe warm, not too fuzzy. Jesus taught that hell was a place of judgment where the wicked would be condemned. He said it was a place of a blazing fire and utter darkness. Put those together for a second. Blazing fire, utter darkness. And he said, in this place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That should cause us to freak out a little bit. Jesus spoke of hell as an eternal fire and an eternal punishment. How long is that? Forever. Forever. He spoke of the horrors of hell, not as an illustration, but as a reality. The horrors of hell. Church, hell is real. And church, God has demonstrated his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, he would send Christ to die on our behalf that we would never have to experience this place. If hell wasn't real, Christ didn't have to die. If there was another way out of it, Christ would not have to die. But because hell is real, James ends his letter with a command to all believers to go after those who have wandered from the truth so that they might be saved from experiencing the reality of hell. Now stop there for a second when you think of hell. How much must you hate somebody to want them to experience eternal torment? What kind of hatred goes into that? I would say it's an evil and wicked hatred. To want someone to experience that. You know, James' brother Jude, really short book in the Bible. Jude was very direct as well, just like James. And Jude said this in verse 23. He said, save others by snatching them out of the fire. That the judgment that's coming upon mankind is the wrath of God. James, or excuse me, Jude says, go and snatch them out of the fire. What do you think he's talking about? Sharing the truth. Sharing the gospel. Sharing hope with people. Jude's pretty direct. He paints a perfect picture of the command that James ends his letter with. See, church, today we deal with something called false converts, but it's nothing new. False converts have been around since the church began a couple thousand years ago. The same letter that was penned a couple thousand years ago is still active and alive to us today. Not only false converts, but those who have just veered off. Those who have redefined the teachings of Christ to suit their own fancy. So I can do as I want. I can sin as I want. I can live as I want because I have the head knowledge that God is real. The book of James says even the demons believe and they tremble. So it's not just that I have this head knowledge that God is real, that Christ is real. So do the demons. But there's something that's more than that. 
James here is warning and saying there are those who have fallen away. They've wandered from the truth. And they are in a terrifying position. Church, I want you to hear what I just said. The people who have wandered from the truth are in a terrifying position. The reason I say this is because we have told you over the last, I don't know, six months or so, that the theme of our prayers is going towards the salvation of the lost. And many of you have written name after name, pray for this person, pray for that person. Even people who were brought up in the church that are now gone. They're gone from the church. No longer around the church. No longer doing the things of God, but doing things their own way. And we have coined this term and we brought it into the New Testament called backsliders. Church, I'm going to ask you this morning, do you know how many times that word is written in the New Testament? Just by me asking, you probably come to the conclusion. Zero. Do you know the times we see about those who are backslidden? Do you know what it referred to? Israel. It referred to Israel. But because we like to minimize the reality of this terrifying position people are in, we just say, oh, it's okay. They once professed Christ, but now they're just in a backslidden position, like some, some purgatory of safety. They're not in a safe place. Now, is it possible for a believer, a genuine believer, to sin and fall into ongoing sin for a while? Yes, but the Bible says that God will chasten, he will discipline those whom he loves. Think about a child who disobeys and a parent who comes by to correct them. Guess what? That child ends up turning from that way. The discipline of their parents, they don't want to go back. Same with us and God. God will bring discipline upon his child who varies from the way. You know, it's interesting, much of James's teaching, as I taught you before, it's influenced by Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you know the conclusion of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches all these things, all these facets of life, saying, you've heard it said this, but I say unto you this. And he concludes in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Stop there for a second. How many people will call him Lord? It's amazing if you turn on the television and watch the Oscar awards or, or any kind of sports awards. They go, oh man, the big guy upstairs or, you know, my Lord up there. But does their life testify that they're a believer? James argues there has to be genuine evidence. There should be works that are evident that you have an internal change. Jesus is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And this is scary. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, listen, church, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These were religious people. They were doing religious things. And yet they have never turned into repentance, turned from their own way and turned to Christ. They continued living their own way and adding religion onto that. And they learned the language. I call it Christianese. You guys know how to speak Christianese? How you doing, brother? Hey, sister. Like we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. God bless you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You know the language. And they spoke it, and they went about doing acts. And Jesus says, I never knew you workers of lawlessness. Their lives were still tied up on selfish ambition. 
selfish pursuits. It was still about them and not the glory of God. You know, Jesus also taught that amongst the weak, which are true, genuine believers, there's going to be tares. And if you know anything about tares and wheat, they look a lot alike. One ends up being fruitful, another one not so. But they look a lot alike. So James penned this letter to help people from being deceived. Deceived of what? Being deceived to think that they're actually saved when in fact they're not. Whoa. Talk about a heavy letter. In the opening chapter of his letter, many of you are familiar with James chapter 1, verse 22. And he wrote, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It doesn't matter if you win on Jeopardy because you had all the Bible questions right. Does that truth come out of your life? Is it evident that you are a believer? Is it evident that you are a follower? You know, Jesus says that the world will know that we're his disciples, not by all the head knowledge that we have, but it's actually by fruit, by the love that we have one for another. Genuine, godly, sacrificial love. In this letter that we've been studying in the book of James, he's laid out the argument that faith without works is dead. Now to explain and make sure that we're clear, salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Stop there. That's it. That's salvation. Everybody got it? Faith in Christ by God's grace. And some people argue with James. No, James is arguing that we have to have works to be saved. No, what he's saying is there must be evidence of our salvation. That if there is truly a change within, there will be a change on the outside as well. That you will see it. That good works are evidence of a regenerated heart that when the person repented and placed their faith in Christ, that God gave them a new heart and gave them new desires. And now you see that working on the way that they go out about every day and what they do and what they say. James gave us a bunch of litmus tests as we went through this book of whether one's faith is genuine. If it's genuinely saving faith or if it is just empty. He gave us one after another. If it's genuine, it's going to be evidenced by the way we honor God. It's going to be demonstrated by the way that we love others, even during suffering and temptation. That's how we started off the book. If our faith is genuine, it's going to be evidence in how we love others sacrificially. Church, is it easy to love people who are loving to you? Of course it is. They treat you nice, man. It's easy to treat them nice. But it's only through the power of the Spirit to bless those who curse you, to pray for your enemies, to love the unlovable. Haven't we used that one before? That person is just unlovable. Well, by God's grace and the power of His Spirit, you are able to love them with God's love. All these litmus tests, he said, it will show up in how we don't show partiality to others. Genuine faith will show up in how we speak to others, on how we deny ourselves by putting God and others above ourselves. James said, genuine faith shows up in how we chase after godliness rather than worldliness. He said genuine faith is evident on how we humbly and patiently wait upon the Lord's return with expectancy. Expectancy. 
looking for the Lord's return. So genuine faith is demonstrated how we trust in God's sovereignty, which means we don't complain about all the circumstances around us. And just last week, we studied that genuine faith shows up in how we pray without ceasing, believing in the power of proper prayer, praying according to God's will. And after all that, all those litmus tests, here's what James concludes with. One command. It's real interesting. Are you familiar with the writings of Paul? He he ends with like, grace to you. Uh, We send our love to you. Not James. James is like, have you been listening? If you have, here's what you need to go do. He's all about being active. Go. And he says, your command is to go and bring back those who have wandered from the truth. John MacArthur said this regarding this. John MacArthur said, God has granted to all believers the ministry of reconciling wandering souls to himself. When the evidence indicates a professed believer's faith is not real, true Christians, knowing the terrible threat of eternal death, that person faces must make it their goal to turn him back from his sin to genuine saving faith in God. We're going to see from this one sentence, it's two verses, but it's one sentence, that James is writing to all genuine believers. But this is for us. It's for us to perk up our ears and go, this is a matter of life and death. That we need to know what he's saying and we need to respond So let's look at that sentence once again. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How does he start? My brothers. Who is he speaking to? Fellow believers. Okay? So he's saying, listen up, believers. Listen up, believers. Here's your charge. So after all that I've written, he's saying, here's how you're going to respond to this. This is what you're going to do. He says, if anyone among you, among who? You. That could be someone sitting right next to you or someone in your realm of influence, someone that you know who has wandered. But he's speaking to the individual believer. Again, this morning, if you are professing faith in Christ, he's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. He's saying whether they're in the church or in your realm of influence, if you know somebody who has wandered from the truth, this charge goes to you. To you. He says they wander from the truth. What does that mean? They've departed from the teachings of Christ. They've departed from holding this as the final arbiter of all things that pertain to life and godliness. That they've made up their own rules for life. And they've minimized their sin. And they think it's no big deal anymore. I can do as I please because I believe still. How many times have you heard somebody say that? Well, I still believe in Jesus. I still believe he's Lord. Church, Lord means master. Which means we do what he says. Jesus told the parable that has been taught an awful lot. I'm going to skim over it. But the parable of the sower and the seed. Church, you familiar with it? 
I'm going to bunch a couple verses together because first he tells it, and then he goes back and he gives the answer about it. So I'm going to put it together. Luke chapter 8 is one of the areas that we find it. We also see it in Matthew. In Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4, it says, When a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, being Jesus, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. Verses later in verse 11, we find out what that seed is. It says the seed is the word of God. Okay, so I want you to keep that in mind. The word of God goes out. He then says in verse 5, he says, And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Well, that doesn't sound good. He later explains that in verse 12. And he says, The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So they heard it. They heard the gospel, and it had no impact on the way. It came in one ear, as we would say, and out the other. Or maybe the ear was shut and it just bounced right off. It didn't go anywhere. There was no response to it at all. That's not who James is talking about. James is talking about the next two, where the gospel came and the person received it. But then they wandered off. In verse 6 of Luke chapter 8, Jesus continues the parable and he says, Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. He explains that in verse 13 and says, The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. Think about that. First time someone heard the gospel, that they could be saved from the reality of hell. They could be saved and forgiven of all sin. That there is somebody else who died in their place. That the wrath of God was placed on somebody, placed on somebody else. That it doesn't have to come to them. They heard that and received it with joy. Received it with joy. But it says these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Time of testing. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, you know there are times of testing. You know there is suffering in this life. But there are those who have peddled a different gospel that says, if you have enough faith in Jesus, that will not occur. Church, I'm telling you this morning, that is not in the Scripture. You will not find that gospel anywhere in here. James starts this letter off by saying, guess what? You're going to suffer. And he says, count it all joy when you do knowing that God's working in that suffering for your good and for his glory. Here's those who receive it, but then suffering comes and they go, done. I've even heard people say, Jesus didn't work for me. He didn't work for you. He's not supposed to work for you. He's the savior of the world. He came to save sinners. That's what Jesus came for. Jesus continues in this parable in verse 7 of Luke chapter 8. He says, Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and or the excuse me, the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And then Jesus explained that in verse 14 and said, As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. What was the problem for them? Worldliness. Worldliness. And there are even teachers out there who are promising great worldliness if you come follow Christ. Jesus taught just the opposite. 
He said those things will keep you from Christ. Those things will cause you to chase after them instead of chasing after Christ. And here in this parable, he says, because of that, they do not produce any fruit. You know what Jesus said about not producing fruit? If the tree doesn't produce fruit, he said it's good for nothing. Except to cut it down, throw it in the fire. Think of what he's speaking about. There must be fruit. James argues the same thing. If there's genuine faith in Christ, if repentance has occurred, you will see evidence in the life of the believer. And then he talks about the good soil. Luke chapter 8, verse 8. He says, some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. In Matthew, he says, some 30, some 60, some 100. Luke just goes straight for the hundredfold. Lots of fruit. Lots of fruit there. You know, John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What is the evidence that we're his disciples? Fruit. The foremost of that being love. But outward acts, good works. Jesus, this is the evidence. This is the evidence of the good soil. So turning back to our text this morning, James chapter 5, James continues in verse 19. He had said, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. So any one of us could be the one wandering and the someone is every one of us who is a genuine believer. If you are a genuine believer, you are the someone. Anyone is the wanderer. Someone is the one bringing them back. I want you to think about this. Typically within a church, People often look to the pastor or the church leaders as the ones that are going to go do this work. Well, pastor, I heard so-and-so is wandering right now. Put them on your list. Chase after them. It's not what James says. James doesn't say bring it to the church leaders, church elders. He says, you, someone, you are aware of it? Chase after them. Go after them. So the question this morning for you is, are you a genuine believer of our Lord Jesus Christ? Meaning after going through this study of James, have you stayed the course? After going through litmus test after litmus test, you say, you know what? Yes, there's evidence that God has changed my heart. He's given me a love for others, a love for him. He's given me a desire to please him when before all I cared about was me, myself, and I. Is there fruit? Is there evidence? Then you are the someone that James is referring to. You are the someone. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. This means to turn somebody from their false belief, to turn somebody from their wicked behavior to a genuine saving faith. It also can infer to turn someone by their false beliefs, someone who has eaten up and swallowed a false gospel, to share the full gospel because the full gospel is glorious. The full gospel is able to save. The full gospel has eternal weight and value. But the temporary, the gospel that's been watered down is just about the here and now, about the better life now. It's so temporary. And there's a terrifying reality that lies ahead. But this talks about bringing him back. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter urged the crowd he was speaking to. Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins 
may be blotted out. Repent. To turn. Turn from your own ways and turn to God and turn to Christ. To return to the truth. To return to what will truly save you. Inferred it earlier, but the gospel today has been repackaged. It's been retailored. And it's been done so intentionally to try to persuade people to believe. There are actually those who have intentionally done this in church history because they thought more people can get converted if we repackage and retailer the gospel. If we make it more palatable. If we make it more exciting. If we make it more about them than the glory of God. And this has happened through church history. Some of you are familiar with church history. And some of you are aware of what has happened through the preaching of some. And they've persuaded everything that's going on. Have you heard of the Great Awakening? Great Awakening in the U.S., 1700s. Led by men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. They would go out and preach to thousands about the truths of God. And these men had a high view of God. And they had a high view of God's holiness. And they had a high view of the gospel. And they would go up and preach the truth of God's word. Not worried about will that person respond or not. They trusted God to do the work. They knew if they would only preach the truth that God was faithful to save men. That God was the one that saved Jesus Christ. And God would be the one to draw them unto Christ. They knew their conviction was to go out and preach the truth. And a great awakening happened. They went out, they preached the full gospel. And church, the full gospel includes bad news. Because there cannot be good news unless there's bad news. And that's what makes the good news great. Is knowing that each of us are sinners. And that God is a just God. And he will by no means clear the guilty. Now I hear people say, well, I'm just trying to get better, Pastor. If I'm getting better, I'm doing all right. And and it's okay, you know, my sins, God will just forgive me because I'm getting better. I'll stand before him and I'll say, God, look at me. I'm getting better. I'm trying harder. I've heard the illustration. It's a great one. Imagine going to a courtroom for traffic violations. And you have thousands of speeding tickets. Thousands of reckless driving tickets. And you stand before a judge and he's a just judge. And you say, hey, judge, before you throw the book at me, I want you to know this. I'm driving better now. I'm doing the speed limit. If he's a just judge, he goes, hey, all right, let's just clear all those thousands of tickets. You're good to go. Absolutely not. He might say, hey, I'm glad to hear that. However, we still have a problem. You have thousands of violations that you must pay for. That's what it is in a holy court. That God is loving, but he's also just. That we must understand there is bad news to appreciate the good news. Whitfield and Edwards would go out and they would preach the whole gospel and many lives were genuinely converted and great fruit came through the right preaching of God's word. Sadly, a hundred years later in the 1800s, there was another awakening, the second awakening, done quite different than the one a hundred years earlier. The second awakening was led by somebody named Charles Finney. Some of you might be familiar with him. Finney was a man who was at the center of this movement, and rather than a high view of God and God's work in salvation and the power of God to convert sinners, 
Finney believed in using any means necessary to reach the sinner, to get them to make a profession of faith. I want you to think about that. Persuasion. To play upon the emotions of man. So instead of trusting the Holy Spirit to convict sinners of their sin and to draw the sinner to Christ, then he started playing on the emotions of the crowd. And I'm sure many of you can say that you've heard some type of gospel go out at some crusade or somewhere where they're stirring up the emotions, stirring up the emotions, stirring up the emotions. That was what Finney started. That was the style of evangelism he went after. Instead of the high view of God, the high view of salvation, that God will draw man and woman unto himself, it was no I must do the work of manipulating the emotion of man and women to get them to respond. And he began a new practice that had not been seen in church history for 1,800 years, and it's called the altar call. Many of you are familiar with that. As a matter of fact, I've had some of you ask me, Pastor, when are we doing an altar call? And I will say, by God's grace, we will never do an altar call. And this is the reason why. The Holy Spirit will draw you unto himself. It is not the work of the pastor. It's the work of God's word going out. The Holy Spirit illumining that to the soul and the mind of the individual and drawing them to salvation. Jesus himself said, hey, here it is. Repent believe. Do you know how many times you see an altar call in Scripture? True. Do you know how many times you see the Lord's prayer, so not the Lord's prayer, the sinner's prayer as it's been called? Do you know how many times you see like Peter or Paul get up and say, everybody raise a hand and repeat after me? Never. Guess where that came from? Finney, the 1800s. And guess what still goes on today? The same thing. Because it visually appears to work. Hey, we saw someone get up and walk forward. And then the pastor tells them, repeat this prayer. And guess what? You're now a child of God. How does he know that? How does the pastor know that person was genuinely converted? He doesn't. He doesn't. We're preaching on hell and it's hot in here. Pastor Manny, can you kill our heater? Because it is hot. I'm seeing people fan themselves, and I know the preaching's hot, but I'm like, it is physically hot in here too. So Finney's practice was to stir up the emotion of them, to call them to walk to the front, to have them repeat a prayer, and to then tell them, you are now a child of God. You now have assurance. And there's not one shred of biblical support for that method. Not one shred. And since the 1800s, this practice is still practiced in churches all over the place. This has led to what is called easy believism. Easy believism says, all I must do is in a church, some pastors say, hey, bow your heads, and if you want to receive Christ, and you want hope of eternal heaven, just raise your hand up. And they'll say, okay, I'm going to pray for you, and now those who I pray for, now you're going to heaven. How does he know that? How does he know there was genuine conversion in the heart and mind of that individual? Jesus says, repent and believe. John the Baptist came before and said, repent and believe. Everybody after them said, repent and believe. That's our scripture. That's what scripture says. And yet man has redefined it. There is no raise a hand and repeat a prayer. The gospel goes out as truth that Christ came to save sinners, that he died in your place. And if you'd only repent, turn, and to trust in him, you shall be saved. 
That's the scripture. Any man or woman, doesn't matter what you've done, all of your sins can be blotted out. All of the wrath of God that was being stored up was placed on Christ. And your response to turn and turn to Christ, to trust in him. I told you there's only one sentence in James. James chapter 5. Again, James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know. Stop there. Let him know. Means you need to understand this truth. It is a big deal. It's a matter of life and death. That whoever brings back a sinner. Well, let me ask you this. Someone that just professes the name of Christ, does that mean they're no longer a sinner? No. Now, for those of us who have genuine faith in Christ, not only was the, the penalty of our sin placed upon Christ and paid for, but there was another transaction. His righteousness was imputed to us. It was a great transaction. But just as those who stand before Christ and say, Lord, Lord, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. There have been many who say, hey, he's my Lord and Savior, I'm a follower. James says, look, if they didn't pass the test, if there's no genuine evidence that they're a believer other than them verbally telling you or having a bumper sticker on their car or wearing a shirt that says Jesus loves you, but if there's no evidence in their life, if their heart has not been regenerated, they haven't been transformed in the likeness of Christ. And by the way, church, that's a continual process to grow, be more and more like Jesus. And James says here, that person is to be brought back. They're to be brought back from their wandering and look at the result. He says this will save their soul from death. It's a matter of life and death. Church, this is a horrifying reality that awaits those who have wandered from the truth. And I hear so many people just flippantly said, oh, they're just backslidden. Hopefully they'll come around. No, it's a matter of life and death. This is urgent. It's an urgent time to reach out to go after these people. To let them know, not just banging them over the head of the Bible, but lovingly instructing them in Scripture and saying, look what God says. I'm concerned for your soul. Church, most people will resist it. We have to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit to convict them, to show them the truth. There are terrifying verses in the Bible. One of them is found in this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 29 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. Whew. By the way, if you're in your Bibles and you keep reading, it goes on. It's a, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of God. These verses here, church, tell us that those who say they believe in the truth, I believe that God sent Jesus to die for me. And yet they just go on living however they want sin. 
that the power of that gospel has done nothing in their lives, and there's no other gospel that will save them. That was their only chance. It was the true gospel that Christ died in their place. And if they're waiting for some other gospel or some other savior, there's not one there. And the only thing at the end of life is the judgment of God. It's a terrifying passage. And yet many do it. They go, I'm going to continue living on in my fornication, my adultery, my, my lying, and my whatever lifestyle. And I'm just going to say, I believe I have this head knowledge of God and I'm good. This warning in Hebrews says, there's no other gospel that's going to save you. You've just rejected the only one. You've trampled over the body of Christ. You stomped on his blood like it didn't matter. The illustration there, the imagery, it's crazy. So that's the gospel to save you. You know, Charles Spurgeon understood the horrifying reality that awaited all false converts and those who rejected the true gospel. It was not just head knowledge to Charles Spurgeon. It led to an urgent response within him. It was a matter of life and death. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Church, if you are a professing believer this morning, that should be our cry as well. That should be our conviction as well. That if we know those who have wandered from the truth or those who are clinging to a false gospel, that we would go after them with all that we have in love, not because we're smarter or better or because we're right and they're wrong, because it's truth. Because it's truth. And because we care about their soul. We care about eternity. So sad the fate of many that will continue on and the reality, the terrifying one, it's hell. We must be compelled to go to that person. We can't just agree that sinners go to hell. Church, this morning, is that a truth you see from Scripture? And you validate and say, yes, I know there is a reality of hell. I know it's a terrifying destination for the wicked. If it is, then what are we doing in response to that? Now, it's been glorious on Wednesday night to come to prayer and see how the heart of prayer has changed to where now you're praying for the salvation. That's awesome. We are to pray. Spurgeon said we're to pray, but we're also to go after them. And if you are that person, that, that sphere of influence, and I think I said it backwards earlier. I talked about the someone, anyone, I think backwards. It's the someone who's wandering. It's anyone, you guys, going after them. Bringing them back. We need to be serious about this. I think it's Ray Comfort. He gives an illustration. He says, look, if you are at the edge of the ocean cliffs and you saw a blind man with a cane walking to the edge of the cliff, what is the reality of what's going to happen? Right? You believe that. You're like, this guy's headed to the cliff. If he falls off this cliff, he's most likely going to die. And if you just stood back and went, well, I know that's true. That guy's headed to the cliff and he's going to die. What kind of love is that? But most of us, I would attest that if there was some blind man with a cane walking to the edge, I'm going to guess that most of us are going to run, or in my case, maybe hobble as fast as you can, screaming at that man, please stop, please stop, there's danger ahead. And if he turns and says, hey, I'm free to do it as I please, you're not just going to say, okay, go ahead. You're going to continue pleading and urging with him, please stop. 
As Spurgeon said, you'll be grabbing around his ankles. Stop! This is a matter of life and death. That we have those who have wandered from the truth. Inside your bulletin, some of you read the quote. Carl F.H. Henry said this. He said, the gospel's only good news if it gets there in time. Think about that. For that individual, now look, the gospel's good all the time. I'm sure some of you analytical folks will say, hey, Robert, the gospel's good all the time. I agree. But for that individual it's going to, it's only good if it gets there before they die. It's only good news to them. James finishes his command, and he talks about the end of verse 20. He says it'll cover a multitude of sins. Someone who's wayward from God is storing up the wrath of God, one sin at a time. Someone has reinvented their own doctrine about who God is and who Christ is, is storing up the wrath of God, one sin at a time. But supreme blessedness is when our sins are forgiven. Psalm 32, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's You want, you want joy? You want happiness? Know this, that Christ came, paid the penalty for sin, that you can be forgiven. But you must know him. You must respond to him in repentance and faith. There must be genuine evidence in your life that you have been converted, that there is a new heart. And there's outward evidence that God has given you a new heart. It's not just because you could speak Christianese. It's not because you've been given a new language. Church, James ends this entire letter with a charge for every single believer. That if you know somebody who has wandered from the truth, that your job, knowing the truth, knowing the reality of hell, and that I don't care how much you would hate somebody, you would never want them to spend eternity in hell. charges, go after them. Go after them. Tell them the truth lovingly, patiently, using scripture and not your opinion. Church, never go out and say, well, my pastor says. It doesn't matter what your pastor says, the guy on TV says, or anybody else. Imagine what God says. Know his word and be able to say, you know what? I'm not arguing with you. I'm just reading what God's word says. Let them wrestle with God. Because I know who wins that battle. Okay? You know, when people wrestle with the pastor's opinion, you know what they do? They go down the street to the next church. And then they go to the next church until they find a pastor who's saying what they want them to say. But if you just give them God's word, this is not going to change. They're going to have to wrestle with the truth. John Calvin said this. He said, nothing is better or more desirable than to deliver a soul from eternal death. Stop there. Think about that. If you have ever shared the gospel with somebody and the light bulb went on and you saw them receive the gospel, oh, what a day that was. He says there's nothing better or more desirable than that. And this is what he does. He restores an erring brother to the right way. Therefore, a work so excellent ought by no means to be neglected. We must therefore take heed lest souls perish through our, look what he says, sloth. talks about laziness. Church, do you know that number one reason people don't go and share with others is because they say, I don't know what to say. I'm not sure what to say. I'm pretty sure you know a lot about the gospel. I'm pretty sure you know a lot of what to say. 
And I'm sure there are certain things in life that are hard. And yet because you desire them, you go and do them. And somehow when it comes to evangelism, it goes to going out and saving the lost, of being soul winners, there's slothfulness, which means laziness. There's always something else to be done. He says, we must therefore take heed lest souls perish through our sloth, whose salvation God puts in a manner in our hands. Not that we can bestow salvation on them, but that God by our ministry delivers and saves those who seem otherwise to be not destructions in your destruction, coming upon them. That's interesting. That's John Calvin. Many people say, well, Calvinists, they don't evangelize. Really? That's Calvin's words. He says, go and tell them the truth. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Ministry. The question this morning is, do you know somebody? Are you aware of somebody who's wandered from the truth? We don't stop praying for them. But when are you going to give them a call? When are you going to have lunch with them? And when are you out of a compassionate, passionate heart, sit with them and say, I love you so much, I need to tell you something. And church, I'm going to tell you this up front because these are conversations that I've had quite a few times. They don't always go well. But you can trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. You might leave that interaction with somebody who's telling you they hate you, maybe even cussing at you and going off, and that same person, the Holy Spirit, can grab a hold of their heart and they can be converted. I can tell you this happened in my own life. When a man early on in my Christian life, like within weeks, I decided I was still going to do something. He came to me and opened up the scriptures and said, read these. You say you're, so, you're a believer? Man, I walked out of that place so ticked off at that guy. I can't believe he told me that. I can't believe he, he, he told me all these things from scripture and he wants me to do these things. And you know who I wrestled with? God. You know who won? God. Drop me right back to obedience to those very scriptures. That's our job. What Jim 20 years ago did to me, it's our job to go out to those who are wandering around us to tell them the truth that there is a terrifying reality ahead. Church, will you take the charge? Will you go and influence those who are around you and by no means am I saying stop writing them down on a prayer card. We want to continue praying. But now we're also praying for you to have boldness to go to them. We're praying for you to have courage to go and to speak to them in love. Because God has put them in your realm of influence. And because you care for them and you love them, whether they're family members, neighbors, co-workers, or whoever, it's given you an opportunity to bring them truth. James says this is a matter of life and death. I don't know how many of you take your schedule for the week and prioritize what needs to be done, but we need to tear that up and put this at the very top. And whatever time's left, that's what else gets done. But we need to prioritize that this is a matter of life and death. This is urgent. And as pastor of this church, I will tell you right now that if you're in here today and you're questioning, you know what? After all that was said today, I'm not even sure if I'm saved. I'm not even sure, you know, that all this litmus test that James gives us of all these different things, then let me lay it down real simple. Friend, you are a sinner as much as I am. But Christ came to die for sinners. He came to call the sick. And Scripture says as sinners we are sick, that we're in need of a physician. And you and I need somebody else to pay the penalty on our behalf. Not only for sin, 
but also to be freed from sin. It's two different things that happened on that cross. That Christ would be to pay the penalty for sin, but also he freed me from the bondage from sin. That I no longer have to walk in sin. Scripture is very clear that when you are apart from Christ, you are in bondage to sin. And you go, you know what, tomorrow I'll change. Tomorrow I'll change. And then tomorrow comes and what happens? Tomorrow I'll change. Because you're in bondage. But the one who breaks that bondage is Jesus Christ. But Scripture is very clear. It's not about trying to be better and trying to earn God's favor. It says you cannot earn his favor. It says that no one can deserve heaven. No one deserves forgiveness. But God is loving and he's merciful and he's gracious. And he demonstrated his love by sending Christ to die. And the transaction occurs, Jesus says, when you repent, turn from going your way and turn to him. The change of mind that leads to a change in life and to trust in him. And there's a transaction that occurs that he will give you his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is to empower you to live a holy and righteous life in the second. To help you do the things you need to do. To be your teacher, your guide as you continue this walk with Christ. That's genuine conversion. That same thing goes out to your friends, your colleagues, your family members who are wandering from the truth. That there is hope. There is true salvation in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't come through raising a hand or walking forward. It comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. James put it this way in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. He said this. He said, submit yourselves therefore to God. By the way, if you're taking notes, great verses to bring someone to. Submit yourself. Turn again. Turn back to God. Submit to him. Church, real quick, if you fall into sin and you've gone through a, a while of, of sin, you're like, I don't know how to go back. It's not a 12-step program. It's a one-step program. Turn, submit to God. Submit to him. And then what's going to happen? There's going to be temptation by the enemy of our soul to draw us back. It says resist him. Resist him, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then speaking of the sin, the practice of sin, cleanse your, your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Meaning, no longer go and engage in that sin. Turn from it. No longer think it's happy and joyful. He says this. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. He's talking about that sin that you once thought was so great and you rejoiced in. Now see that that sin was leading you to hell. And that Christ had to die for that sin. So instead of thinking that sin's so great, now there's a change. Now I see it as God sees it. And I mourn and I weep. My laughter over that sin is turned to mourning. The joy over that sin is turned to gloom. And he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Believer, if you were here this morning, there's somebody I'm pretty certain that you know who has wandered from the truth. James painted the picture right there of turning back to God. Submit yourself to God. James 4, 7. No longer seek after sin, but seek after the Lord. No longer think sin is your pursuit of fun and happiness and pleasure, but it's God, it's Christ, that your satisfaction might be in him. In him alone. That's how James ends his letter, church. Same thing that's gone on for 2,000 years. The same power of these words to give a charge saying, this is a matter of life and death. Go. Let's pray.